I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Now, prior to starting the show, Santosh and I had a little bit of a disagreement. See, it's an alternate week, so I wanted to do everybody's favorite alternate week episode, Journal Club. Yay! Woo! <laughs> and I wanted to do like a history of medicine way back machine episode. So we decided to compromise and we're going to go hop in the way back machine and talk about a journal club involving Neanderthals. (laughs) So prehistoric (laughs) medicine guys. Yeah. Like prehistoric journal club. I absolutely love it. This is the perfect compromise. If, if we consider Well, let's talk about some of the most famous Neanderthals, the Flintstones, and how they would have been susceptible to to COVID-19. Are you talking about the modern Stone Age family? Absolutely. Would Hanna-Barbera come and sue us if we, like, threw out a bunch of yabba-dabba-doos? I've always been more of a fan of the Jetsons' ooba-dooba. But why don't we yabba-dabba-do it? Let's hop into our Wayback Machine. Um, Oh, pit stop! We're going to make a quick stop in the Wayback Machine because... Okay. And, and you'll like it. We're going to give you just a little bit of medical etymology. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go for it. So we're going to hop out of our Wayback Machine in the early 1900s, you know, to pick up some snacks on our way back to prehistoric times. And because it might overlap with the Victorian era, which is Josh's other favorite. <laughs> but this time we're going to stop not in Victorian England, but in Russia. And we're going to stop with Russian botanist. Oh, we're hitting all the buzzwords. <laughs> we're going to start. We're going to make a stop with Russian botanist Dmitry Ivanovsky, who, at the age of 28 years old, at a scientific meeting in St. Petersburg, presented evidence of a completely unexplainable phenomenon. He had found a disease with no germ. Dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> I see I see you're keeping the Wayback Machine idling. That's good. We won't spend too long here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to have to, you know, because then you have to... I don't know why you installed like a pull start in here, like a friggin' lawnmower. Like you could have just made it a button. Listen, when you build a Wayback Machine, you can decide the mechanics. <laughs> when botanist Dmitry Ivanovsky exposed tobacco leaves to a certain clear liquid, he could watch the leaves model and get infected, but he couldn't find the bacteria under his microscope that could explain the change. They had already demonstrated during the late Victorian era that microscopic life could cause disease. 
But here was a disease where he couldn't find a microbe. So he said it must be hiding somewhere in the gloop he had put on the leaves and termed it a virus from the Latin word for slime. So COVID-19 just means COVID goop. Ha ha! Uh, so 125 years later, we still use Ivanovsky's term, but of course we know viruses are far more interesting and stranger than ever imagined. And for those of you who haven't been playing along at home, the unit of viral existence, an individual virus, is called a virion. And yep. even though it can make hundreds of thousands of copies over its life cycle, it never does anything that can technically be described as living. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't mate. It doesn't live, laugh, or love. It just punctures a cell's wall, hijacks its protein factories, and forces it to make more of itself. <laughs> Actually, Josh, we might be able to hit all your favorites today. This is where we walk the line oh. <laughs> between life and not life. And it's important to explore this, right? Because a lot of us do have this, uh, you know, conception that, you know, life is special, all this kind of a thing. There are some of us who understand or who think of life as just another step in a biochemical process that, you know, we're just another step from that ancestral way of being, which is just a self-replicating particle. And so you're absolutely right. The major thing that a virus doesn't do is it doesn't utilize energy to do other things other than to just replicate. So that's that's all it does. And, and even then, it doesn't even use its own energy. It uses um, whatever cell it's inside. So all of them, all of them are obligate parasites. Uh, they, they can't, you know, replicate in and of themselves, which is why a lot of people don't put them in the, the category of life. Sounds really slimy, which is why virus <laughs> comes from slime. Can't say that. that is some good etymology. So wait, um, and by the way, it, it, was, it was Latin then. Yes, it is based on a Latin word for poisonous secretion. I'm I'm fudging a little, calling it slime. Okay, okay. So this could be. So this is the same kind of root like venom, you know, something you know that that's secreted out that can kill you. Yeah. Cool, cool. Very neat. Very neat. Uh, so you have spent all the V rays and power you have for the defense of a vain paradox, and spit out all the virus and poison you could conceive. But. Now that we've made our brief stop to explain what a virus is, let's grab our snacks, get back in the Wayback <laughs> Machine. Santosh, get that pull cord. I got... <laughs> All right. And on our way, I'm going to point out the window over the Wayback Machine, and you can see that a team of Canadian researchers recently found a strain of bacteria, Peony Bacillus, <laughs> in a cave. Okay. Oh, this is you and your pronunciations. Peony bacillus. That's what I said. Peony bacillus. Oh, my God. <laughs> in a cave Fine. in New Mexico that had been closed uh -huh. off for more than 4 million years. What are Canadian scientists doing all the way that far south? Keeping warm. Though <laughs> harmless to humans, this ancient bacteria was resistant to almost all modern clinical antibiotics, including some of the newest and most aggressive, which suggested that bacteria can survive very exotic and remote environments. This is just one example. If you'll look out the other window of the Wayback Machine, in late July 2016, an outbreak of anthrax ripped through reindeer herds in Siberia. Don't worry, Rudolph's okay. Uh, oh. But it did kill over 2,000 people. But what about Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen? They're all good. Donner has a little bit of a cold, uh, but the rest okay. are recovering. But 2,000 people, uh, well, 2,000 non-Santa reindeer died. And a couple dozen people also got pretty ill. And the reason was a reindeer carcass from over 100 years ago that had been locked in Siberian permafrost until climate change warmed it up enough to thaw the frozen soil and the corpse inside. Now, Santosh, oh, God. <laughs> as you well know, anthrax yeah. is notoriously hardy, and I don't mean Tom. Ah, <laughs> you, 
You're right, Dr. Josh. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's quite... <laughs> they can live for quite a while under the soil. I'm Batman? listing... <laughs> as I'm listing some more of our of our diseases as we journey way back, in 2015, researchers announced that a giant virus, that's a technical term, uh, yep. a giant virus they discovered also in the Siberian permafrost was still infectious after over 30,000 years. Luckily for us, that virus infects only amoebas and isn't dangerous to humans, but between Painy bacillus between you know hundred year old anthrax and now thirty thousand year old giant viruses. There's a lot of concerns that as the globe keeps warming, deadlier pathogens hidden deep in the permafrost or other unknown viruses thought extinct might be lurking and waiting to attack us from all the way back in the past. So Santosh, I'm going to have to ask that as we get out of the way back machine and finally start talking about our Neanderthals that you uh, mask up. Uh, definitely. All kinds of personal protective equipment coming on right now. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why there were so many extinctions and then, you know, things died off. Yeah, there was, you know, earthquakes and asteroids and fires and all this, but pandemics and worldwide illnesses like this that spread around, they definitely did their share of damage. So I, I am not terribly happy about all of this. Just like you said, the, the giant viruses, they don't infect humans. They infect amoebas um, and other microscopic life. And we're pretty much safe from those guys. But, you know, anthrax are spore formers. They can just, you know, create a, that, that bacteria can create a spore. That spore will stay in the soil for however long. The cold helps it preserve even bit longer. So we have to prepare for this. There are going to be other viruses, bacteria that awaken as permafrost thaws, as the climate changes, and it's going to either hit us or it's going to hit our animal friends, which we depend on um, for food and life. Or it could, Josh, even hit our, our plant friends and wipe out things like crops. So I'm not too happy about it. But, you know, if we're going to go meet our friends, the Neanderthals, we can hang out here for a little bit. But I don't want us bringing anything back to the future. <laughs> How many music and movie references have we made this episode? Send us the correct response for surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so actually, hey, if you seriously count them up and send it, uh, I, I'll give you a shout out on the episode. I don't <laughs> I don't mind it. Um, now. As we step out and start looking, here's where our Neanderthals and our COVID intersect, Santosh. A study, mm. a study published last year, there's a couple we're going to talk about, but a study published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine identified two specific gene regions associated with severe cases of COVID-19. One is located on chromosome 3, which contains only six genes, and the other is on chromosome 9, and that determines what your blood type will be, ABO blood groups. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, so in September of 2020, the journal Nature showed that a Neanderthal gene variant on chromosome 3, if you had it, there was a 60% increased likelihood of severe respiratory failure and the necessity for hospitalization. How many people in today's world have that Neanderthal gene variant? Well, about 16% of people from Europe and about 50% of people from South Asia. Neanderthal genes are actually pretty rare in Africa. They didn't seem to roam in that area. So most of what we're talking about is going to be European and Asian. But specifically, this particular variant, this Neanderthal variant that can double the risk of dying from COVID-19 practically, is in over 63% of people from Bangladesh, compared to only about 10% of people, white people in the United Kingdom. I'm just choosing two very scattered countries. There is no other reason. And this was led by Hugo Zeberg and Savante Pabo at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. So having one kind of Neanderthal gene 
makes it very, very dangerous for you to get COVID-19, almost doubles your risk of hospitalization. But a more recent study from the journal Penis, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. P-N-A-S, yeah. That's what I said. (laughs) Found a gene on chromosome 12 in the OAS1 region that appears to actually protect against severe COVID-19 and makes you much more likely to get the asymptomatic form. Presence of each copy of OAS1 gene reduces your likelihood or need of requiring intensive care by about 22%. Beautiful. So let's... I'm going to I'm going to back up just a little because I threw out a lot of math and statistics for me. And on the by this had to be folded in, you know, when you when you're looking at these genetic traits and you're trying to follow them. This is difficult to do because you have to isolate the risk or the benefit of that particular gene in the context of all the other stuff that makes us more vulnerable or less vulnerable to severe covid. So you do have to use mathematics and, you know, statistical methods to what we call isolate this variable away from other things that can affect us like our weight or our propensity or our having diabetes, um, which are also ginormous, you know, huge risk factors in and of themselves. So Gene normous? Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually quite gene normous. <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, the presence of this uh, protective copy of a Neanderthal gene looks like the prevalence has been steadily increasing since the last ice age. And scientists believe about maybe half of all people outside Africa carry at least one copy, which looked at in terms of big picture may help contribute to why there were so many asymptomatic carriers. Uh, Just a little sidebar here for everybody who's wondering where we're coming from Africa. Uh, So Homo uh, Neanderthalus was really, really well suited for the Ice Age. Most of them did very, very well when they were in the cold. And their origins um, seem to be from a different part of the world. Who we are today, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, came from the part of Africa we're pretty sure that is now like Somalia. So that's why you don't really see that ancestry going around in sub-Saharan Africa. And that ancestry, not completely different. In fact, you know, we're all descended from those Homo sapiens sapiens in this current day and age. But people who are strongly of that lineage and don't have any mixture from European or Asian ancestry, that's why they're kind of isolated away from this, uh, this other group of, of Neanderthalus. The anthropological way of saying that is that humans migrating out of Africa were probably going to be small pioneering groups and appear to have encountered Neanderthals living around the area of like the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East, uh, somewhere around, we'll just ballpark it at 60,000 years ago. The the breaking on the Wayback Machine isn't great. (laughs) As modern humans migrated out of the Middle East after encountering Neanderthals and breeding with them, some of that DNA was carried. And in modern day, present day humans, at least according to all those genetic tests that I still don't encourage people to get because you're just selling your genetic information, about 2% in present-day humans, roughly 1% to 2% of your genome is inherited from Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And, and that does vary from region to region, but overall, yeah, about 2%. So now we'll start kind of jumping in and out of it. But why does this matter? Well, in the future, available medicines like phosphodiesterase inhibitors that increase OAS1 could be explored for their effect on COVID-19. So we could start targeting medications based on genes that we know provide protective effects, things like that. So it's not CRISPR, but we can look at what the Neanderthal genome is, what the human genome is, what the protective effects are, and say, what do we have that'll enhance those specific regions? Yeah, Josh, I'm so happy to say this kind of science of bedside genome sequencing, where you can very rapidly get 
a genome sequence and then get very quick analysis based on what genes you want to read and look at right at the bedside and then tailor therapy. Uh, we're in a very good place with that kind of science. And maybe in the next decade, decade and a half, we're going to be seeing this type of science get directly implemented into medical practice. So now let's kind of go back to our, our original study. And in 2016, Neanderthal DNA at various sites in the genome, as we mentioned, influences a wide range of immune and autoimmune traits. Some genes, like those on chromosome 3, make you more susceptible. Now, we're talking right now specifically about COVID, but there's a whole host of viruses, and this is where it starts getting really cool. So yes, as you (laughs) mentioned, there was association with obesity and malnutrition, so you can blame Fred Flintstone and those dino ribs for why you may have trouble shedding pounds, Uh, (laughs) you know, potential metabolic effects. Yep, yep, yep. Interestingly, the researchers also saw a lot of association between Neanderthal ancestry and two types of non-cancerous skin growths associated with uh, keratinocytes, supporting the idea that essentially a lot of the Neanderthal DNA was selected for its effects on skin. As you mentioned, Santosh, the Neanderthals were kind of well-suited to living in an ice age. And as the ice age is ending and we're exposed to more solar radiation, people who are better able to develop a tan, such as far South uh, Asians or Africans are much less likely to want to interbreed with people who are pale and can be injured by the mere light of the puny sun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I I hope there is a lot of mixing though, because I'll tell you when you do have HLA, the, the human leukocyte antigens mixed from vastly different ancestries in this, the variation, the genetic variation makes for uh, a lot more of a secure population where, you know, you, you may be able to dodge, uh, you know, some pathogens, which, you know, they're like, oh, I can kill those humans, you know, that look like this. But then, you know, oh, I've never encountered this mix before. So it is really cool to, to get the right, you know, diversity of mixes in there. I like it. So there's two... Like as as just a fun aside, we're going to be talking less about phenotypic expression, which is the outward appearance of a gene, and more about genotypic expression, which is the inner function of a gene. But as just a fun aside, the archaic or Neanderthal sequences that span a gene known as BNC2, a stretch that researchers Verno and Aki have identified as having a Neanderthal origin in about 70% of non-Africans were mm-hmm. very clearly associated with skin color. So about 50% of Neanderthal variants that are linked to a phenotype or a physical expression tend to have something to do with skin or hair color, uh, either to provide better insulation or less melatonin or things like that. So we inherited a lot of physical gene features from our Neanderthal cousins. Um, Yeah, yeah. And you can imagine, you know, if you're up north, if you're in an ice age, there's not a lot of sun. If you have less melanin, then you have a better chance to actually utilize what little UV radiation is coming in and, uh, you know, making vitamin D which is essential. Now, jumping a little a little bit ahead to the genotypic expression, and before we talk about our, our other group of prehistoric humans, um, mm-hmm. Stanford University researchers have managed to identify DNA sequences that evolved in Neanderthals that can produce antivirus proteins, which more than likely gave some human populations who were interbreeding with the Neanderthals the edge they needed to survive. Let me put it this way. If you are early, early homo sapien sapien, and you are dealing with viruses in the permafrost because you're in the permafrost ice age, you could either evolve your own immune system over surviving and breed with the next, you know, and pass it on to your kids. Or you could just borrow the already adapted genetic defenses from Neanderthals rather than waiting for your own adaptive mutations. Oh, sure. And by the way, that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a a cognitive choice, (laughs) but there, there was kind of an attractive 
trait that you'd see as you were wandering around. It's like, hey, you know, those people are surviving and they look like they're thriving in the midst of a pandemic. Nothing sexier than surviving an ice age. <laughs> it is. And, you know, this explains the variation that we see over time, right? You know, in times of scarcity, if you see someone who's, you know, nice and chubby, you know, they got a little, little more of them to love. You know, that's pretty attractive right there. And more importantly, it would pass along genes that had nothing to do, at least on the surface, with weight. So to build a case for this one way or the other, did early humans borrow from Neanderthal by interbreeding, which we will call introgression, or did they adapt on their own uh, through evolution? Stanford researchers put together a list of about 4,500 virus-interacting proteins made by our genome. Uh, Mm -hmm. We'll call those VIPs. And (laughs) they were matched against a database of Neanderthal DNA that we've created from a lot of archaeological and paleontological work that could be found in modern East Asian and European human populations. So we've sequenced almost all of the Neanderthal genome. And we looked at the genes from there and compared it to those Neanderthal sequences in modern Asians and Europeans. And they found about 152 VIPs or virus interacting proteins shared by both groups of humans, the Asian European modern day folks and the Neanderthal folks. Now, This is the super cool part, and Santosh, you're going to have to put it into context because it gets a little technical. Interestingly, every single one of these virus interacting proteins that they identified that we had sort of inherited or adapted from our Neanderthal ancestors were of a variety that interacted with RNA viruses. So pathogens like influenza A, hepatitis C, HIV... Over Mm -hmm. time, as a mix of less useful Neanderthal genes kind of fell out of our gene pool, all these VIP genes, which is why I'm calling them that, stuck around, helping regional populations deal with their specific areas' RNA viruses. So this explains why the same kind of Neanderthal genes aren't found in equal numbers in Europe and Asia. You know, chromosome 3 may be way more in Asian DNA versus chromosome 9, maybe in European, and chromosome 12 may be equal in both. But almost all of the VIP genes they found interacted specifically with RNA-style viruses. So, Professor Santosh, (laughs) please put this into context for our home listeners. This is so cool. So RNA viruses are some of the most ancient viruses, um, they are very regional and they're rather host specific, but because of their property, you know, the genome being RNA rather than DNA, which is very stable, RNA has a higher rate of mutation. And in some cases like HIV, Josh, the, the rate of mutation is wild. It's absolutely crazy, um, which is how, you know, it hopped from recently from, um, probably simians, um, apes to, to human beings in the modern context, and same with coronaviruses. So this is really, really cool how in a particular region, so you could, you know, several populations could inherit Neanderthal DNA. And again, these, these folks were in all clones, right? They all had their own differences and everything. So different sorts and types of Neanderthal DNA. And obviously these were close enough to us as homo sapiens that we could reproduce with them and have fertile offspring. But then, you know, you go off to the north, I'll go west, someone else goes southwest, and we are going to encounter in our tribes and villages different RNA viruses which become particular to us. So yes, the hepatitis viruses and those kind of things, but even like cold viruses, which coronaviruses are just, you know, causing you know, the usual coughs and colds and that kind of a thing. And the RNA viruses are going to select out that are going to have the best or easiest times to infect their hosts, i.e. humans. And then the human beings that survive, right, are being selected out by the RNA viruses. So 
it's a really, really neat interaction of how you could take, you know, the same ancestry, uh, maybe, you know, one Neanderthal person uh, had several children that went in different directions and, and different particular locations, had families of their own, started tribes in different areas. And then that lineage, though, st- even though it started out mostly homogeneous, would start, you know, mutating, changing and selecting out to keep and lose certain traits that would allow them to survive in their region with their virion, their, uh, it's like microbiome, but like with viruses. So the virion around. So, them. you know, Fred, Wilma, Barney, and Betty would have had their own variants they would have been protected from, and they would have passed all those on to Pebbles and Bam Bam, and Pebbles and Bam Bam's kids would have had even further ones until we reach the Jetsons, who now carry a bunch of virus-protecting proteins inherited from that one crossover episode. I, <laughs> I love it, yeah. And so that interweaving of genetics that you have that way makes it so that you can eventually go from being a specialist um, where your genes have been selected out to deal with a very narrow pool of pathogens to, you know, not as well taking care of a single pathogen, but more heartily being able to survive a, a range of pathogens. And over time, Josh, now this is the coolest part. It makes it harder for those RNA viruses to be lethal right? So this is why respiratory viruses like coronaviruses, over time, they have a tendency to become a little bit more uh, uh, contagious, but a lot less virulent, meaning that they'll pass on and on and on, but they're more likely to just cause like a common cold, because those are the viruses that survive in harmony with the humans that have survived to combat it. The goal is to take a lethal virus from Neanderthal times or modern times, and over years and years of evolution, we adapt or borrow genes that turn it into nothing more complicated or lethal than the great gazoo. Irritating, (laughs) ever-present, can't shake it, but not going to kill you. That goddamn alien broke my favorite cartoon. Screw that guy. So... Specific- no, seriously. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so multiple labs have tied Neanderthal variant genes, and I know I'm not pronouncing it right, and I just don't care. Uh, <laughs> multiple labs have tied Neanderthal variants to altered gene level expressions, encoding toll like receptors, which are key mm-hmm. players in innate immune responses, and yeah. also. To your favorite HLA alleles, yeah, <laughs> yeah, toll-like receptors. Uh, they they appear on cells or inside cells, but they're what they're called uh, pattern recognition receptors. So they're able to recognize um, stretches of amino acids or DNA or RNA, and they fit them like a little lock and key. And when those things fit together, they trigger downstream responses to send out the cytokines, the killer molecules to to start attacking. And then the HLAs shape um, our uh, surface receptors like T-cell receptors and MHC, uh, you know, the the, um, major histocompatibility complex, which help us recognize uh, foreign invaders outside of cells uh, floating around and sometimes inside of cells as well. All of which is a fancy way of saying like we got our immune systems stronger and faster than they would have otherwise been because somewhere way back in your you know genetic tree, unless you're African, in which case it's a much lower probability, Someone, your great, 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 great grandfather or grandmother got down with a caveman. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, diversity is awesome. Well, good it's, news, it's so cool. Santosh. There were two kinds of cavemen running around during the Ice Age. We've been talking okay. about the Neanderthals because they're a little bit more tied in this particular case to COVID. But <gasps> Josh, you pronounced it the right way. But... There's another group 
of cavemen that we had discovered oh right around the time that your favorite movie came out the lord of the rings and, and originally they were called hobbits and then we gave them the slightly more professional name denisovans so the denisovans ranged from siberia to southeast asia and they may have been around until about 30,000 years ago, based on the genetic legacy living in Southeast Asians, whereas a lot more Europeans are likely to have Neanderthal DNA, uh, although it can be found, as I said, throughout regions. Um, the Denisovans tend to be much, much more prevalent among Southeast Asians, and to the extent that when they reconstructed the entire Denisovan genome in 2012, and we saw that they had interbred with modern humans during the time they co-inhabited Eurasia, but a study linked the archaic sequences for high-altitude adaptation, you know, low oxygen, cold weather, uh, short, stocky, high-stamina bodies— among populations that live in the Tibetan highlands and the particular variants they focused on were so highly selected for pretty much everyone living on the plateau in Tibet carries this piece of Denisovan DNA. So all the (laughs) Sherpas carry Denisovan hobbit DNA that allows them to be Sherpas. Yeah. And we do have this kind of, we were wondering for a really long time, and we still wonder in anthropology and in evolutionary biology, why is it, you know, Josh, like there's so many species of like deer, right? Just kind of like going all the way around. Why did we end up with one species under the genus Homo? Uh, you know, that that's, you know, there are no Denisovans. There's no more, you know, uh, Neanderthals anymore. But the truth of the matter is, Homo sapiens sapiens uh, got to kind of blossom when the ice age thawed um, because they were just so much better adapted to running across, you know, large plains um, when it was nice and warm outside. And the others were like, ah, too warm. But by this time, you know, there was already a lot of bow chicka wow wow. So the ancestral DNA came along for the ride but, you know, clustered exactly where you're saying where our ancestors um, were thriving the most. Which means that the Neanderthals were probably stronger and faster than us um, and mm-hmm. smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, well, uh, no, and, and they're probably quite intelligent and maybe for a while outpaced Homo sapiens, um, you know, definite, you know, society and tool use, a lot of stuff that we, you know, think about with more like, quote unquote, modern homo sapien society. But they were not adapted well to live in a warmer world. And the Denisovans also were probably a lot better than early homo sapiens at living in some of these extreme environments. And that's why you may find you know, certain kinds of Denisovan or Neanderthal genes scattered around in the heights of Tibet or the isles of the Philippines and Indonesia. Um, Mm -hmm. But Oceania, we'll say Oceania. But at the end of the day, Homo sapiens are just better at sex than everybody. So (laughs) we stuck around. (laughs) We just, we banged the necessary genes right out of those other populations. <laughs> and carry, gave it to our children and said, go forth and multiply. And boy, howdy, did we do that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's an advantage to being horny. <laughs> At last. <laughs> 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 Not working just imagine, imagine our ancestors just sitting around going what do they got on us well they're stronger they've already discovered fire well what do we got we're horny and then like the village elders just going oh thank god oh <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah we, we were just a bunch of bunch of breeders 
Um, but I just find it really interesting of like how many genetic adaptations, you know, we've been taught for years and years and years that as humans, we have evolved and, you know, we've taken mutations in our genes or we've evolved over time to adapt to our environment. And it turns out a lot of these studies have shown our major adaptation was finding people who had adapted to their environment and breeding mm -hmm. with them to kind of get their genes that they had done all that hard work for. We'll just pass them on to our kids without having to wait several generations for it to show up. <laughs> It certainly, as you mentioned, was not a conscious decision, but for everybody who is, for lack of a better word, getting off on checking their ancestry results uh, <laughs> to find out, you know, what does it mean when you see, oh, I'm 1% Neanderthal or I'm 2% Denisovan? Well, that's what's happening. You are getting potential protection or increased risk to COVID. You are getting HLA. You are getting a lot of virus in fighting tactics that we have inherited from these ancient, ancient ancestors. Now, let's hop, let's get back into our way back machine and, and head back to the future. And mm. uh, I'll tell you what, Santosh, I had, yeah. I had one of the Denisovans working yeah. on the thing. So we've included a button instead of the pull start. Um, hey. So why don't you hit that? <laughs> and then I'll tell you why we may have carried forward some things that were less potentially helpful. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, we're going a little fast there. All right. Well, uh, here's the thing. Yeah. A lot of what we used to call junk DNA, you know, parts of our mm -hmm. gene <laughs> that was just like, uh, it's just there. <laughs> and this is, this is scientific bias that shows up, right? Is that, you know, I can't see it, and you know it's interacting with gravity, but I can't see. Oh, that's just dark matter. You know, it's just. And <laughs> there's a. Oh, what does this DNA do? It doesn't seem to code for anything, or it's partially defect. Oh, it's just junk. It's. <laughs> and then, of course, we find out later that like dark matter actually makes up like sixty percent of actual all matter. <laughs> the junk DNA. It's actually super, super important, uh, as opposed to the tiny amount of DNA that codes for stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we found out that contrary to what you may have heard about in school, junk DNA isn't really a thing. There's sections of DNA that we don't always understand yet, like what they're mm -hmm. supposed to be doing. They don't have any observable function that we know of, and that's what we call junk. But yeah. I'm going to tell you about an an ancient virus that we're all kind of carrying around with us that does nothing until it does. And this is a little bit of a, <laughs> a horror story. Um, nothing that you at home need to be scared of today. We've got enough going on. But for future, future writers, there yeah. are endogenous retroviruses. Uh, mm -hmm. Endogenous meaning native to our own system. Retroviruses meaning they did not start that way. <laughs> well, uh, so it, retro is, you know, it's not like it's from the 80s. <laughs> no, it's from the Paleolithic era. Yeah. So retroviruses as a whole um, are a class of viruses that can reverse going from RNA over to DNA. Not all RNA viruses can do that. And they can retro... Uh, meaning that they can throw their genetic material, you know, into DNA and then throw it into the host genome. And that's not that's not something that a lot of viruses can do. It's kind of a rare talent. In comic but, books, this is known as a retcon. <laughs> Although these viruses really aren't going back in time. They're just uh, they're no, but they literally shuffling they, our DNA. They sort of retroactively change the inciting organism. So a retrovirus goes yes. back and alters the DNA of the host organism. So it changes, in some ways, it changes its origin. It retcons the organism or retroactively, <laughs> okay, okay. retroactive continuity. So there we go. I, I, I already got ancient times. I got history. I got etymology. I had to throw a little comic book in here. Because, I love it. Because your button is having us go at ludicrous speed. <laughs> We've gone to plaid, Josh. So endogenous retroviruses are encoded within the genomes of all higher eukaryotes 
and arose from the original infection by exogenous retroviruses, maybe one of these giant viruses that was found in the Siberian permafrost, maybe a different virus that, you know, was in place during the Ice Age, but no longer exists because everyone it infected is frozen in Jurassic Park amber or a block of ice like Captain America. Who knows? These... (laughs) These infections generally occurred in the far distant past, and most of them in our genome have been inactivated by mutations or deletions over time. One example of this that we're going to talk about is the human endogenous retrovirus K, or HERV-K, that is (laughs) in the genome uh, about 50 or more full-length proviruses and over a thousand long terminal repeats. Now, the HERV-K virus first entered the primate genome after the split of new and old world monkeys and have carried forward into us even today. I still haven't gotten to why we care. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I need to lay the foundations. You're, you're absolutely right. It's important to kind of lay everything down. So all in all, there are these viruses which can, uh, you know, switch from RNA to DNA and then throw that DNA into our own genome. And then here's the important part, Josh. They can cause um, shuffling of our own stretches of DNA while inactivating itself, like making itself not able to replicate any further because it, it you know, like if you jam yourself into a space, you're basically like kind of just throwing your body into a wall. <laughs> it causes a lot of it makes a big hole and a lot of smearing maybe it'll come together just fine but there's a decent chance that you just mess yourself up in the process um but what it allows for is rapid mutation generations and generations create that you can just shuffle out but that vir- that piece of virus sticks around but hey maybe you just made that human a little bit more survivable you know. <laughs> or maybe you gave them a disease waiting to happen because, importantly, sure. individual, as I said, over 50 or more proviruses, which are you know not quite a virus but has the potential to become one with just a few additional instructions. So over some of these proviruses encode functional forms of several viral proteins, and scientists have found that the HERV-Ks are expressed in certain human tumor cell lines where they produce viral particles, but not in all tumor cells and not even consistently in the same tumors. So the ability of the HERV-K to start producing those viral proteins sometimes is dependent on the addition of a modern-day virus. So, for example, there is a possibility that infection with HIV-1 may suddenly turn on some of those previously inactivated or quiet HERV-K structural proteins, and that can then make it more likely to produce certain tumors, including teratocarcinomas or testicular cancers. Low levels are also absorbed in the normal placenta and testicular tissue. So you have a virus that's kind of sitting in our body doing nothing for years and years and years until some new virus, whether it's HIV or COVID or something randomly out of the permafrost now starts interacting. And through the fusion of those two, all of a sudden, the old one gets turned back on. And it's not an autoimmune disease because we're not attacking ourselves, but we have a little bit of a, a sleeper cell or a sleeper gene that didn't even know it could be dangerous until it was. <laughs> yeah, this is it's pure kind of random chance, kind of, but at the same time, Josh, it actually proves that modern retroviruses, and in this case, they were looking at endogenous retrovirus K um, encoded in the humans, and then uh, HIV rev protein, and seeing how those two interacted, it actually shows a link, an evolutionary link across 30 million years of time. Uh, Because honestly, you know, viral particles like this after evolution and, you know, how proteins have changed and everything, they really shouldn't be able to, you know, 
set each other off like this or interact in this way. Um, but this really shows that, you know, these stretches of uh, DNA, which encode proteins and which interact in this fashion, are so suited to life, in, in a sense, meaning that, like, the, the environment around them has a tendency to preserve it, uh, just out of because it works for one reason or another, that one of these viruses, HIV, can interact with the uh, Herv K that's 30 million years old, <laughs> and they can actually interact with each other. Um, and, and It can jumpstart you know, it. it. It gives it a yeah. little jump. So like, although mm-hmm. the expression of Herv K in cells that are targets for HIV-1 hasn't really been examined, it's very interesting that up to 70% of HIV-positive patients were able to express antibodies that could recognize HERV-K. Which is supposed to not be an active coding region. Yeah, like it shouldn't be doing anything in our bodies, and all of a sudden, you know, it's now making structural proteins that antibodies to a totally different disease are like, hey, I know that guy. (laughs) yeah yeah and it's an interesting thing because it 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 satisfies some of our you know the the weirdness that we have when we're looking at and as you said josh with tumor lines right and it says well why should this tumor have come from you know this virus when you know we didn't see hiv integrated in any of the regions that would shut off a tumor suppressor or turn on a proto-oncogene, like, you know, it, it really didn't make sense. Um, but this type of interaction can really help unravel a lot of mysteries of how all of a sudden our cells are changed in a way that we could not previously explain. So the last kind of story we'll, we'll end on as we briefly pull to a stop Mm. Uh, back up here in 2021 Uh. mom's a neanderthal dad's a denisovan the first discovery of an ancient human hybrid a female who died 90,000 years ago was half neanderthal and half denisovan so everybody was breeding it was it was an interbreeding bonanza essentially (laughs) it's it's like we were talking about before you know you just encounter whoever you encounter as you nomad across vast stretches of Eurasia. <laughs> so the Denisovans came from a the Denisova cave in Siberia, Russia, the Altai Mountains mm-hmm. of Russia. And the right. Neanderthals, as we said, were mostly in like the Fertile Crescent, Middle East during the Ice Age. They bred with each other, which meant, you know, by the time we got around to the party and, and joined the Paleolithic uh, party, um, they had already evolved a bunch of these things. So we thought that they were living completely separately and we were the first to try and date from each species. But apparently <laughs> they had already been interbreeding with each other. And that may also have contributed to some of these junk regions that are hidden where we don't actually know, even though we've sequenced the Neanderthal gene and the Denisome genome, we don't actually know how much those two interbred with each other and influenced the the genes. So we were the third wheel. So before the discovery of a Neanderthal Denisovan individual who they named yeah. Denny, uh, the best <laughs> the best I love anthropologists. The best evidence was found in the DNA of a Homo sapiens specimen who had a Neanderthal ancestor within the previous six generations. Okay. All right. And so there were de- there was Denisovian descendancy in that homo sapiens uh kind of specimen and the without going into super technical the reason this was interesting is because of the mitochondrial dna that came through so the mitochondrial dna came from a neanderthal but the sex chromosomes came from a denisovan oh cool okay so we had an entirely you know like an entire chromosome that came from a different species, but was still compatible with this, uh, you know, with this combo uh, human. That, <laughs> that is so neat. I love so, that. So 
we we started off with kind of talking a little bit about COVID, and then we went all the way back to the origins of viruses and our Neanderthals and Denisovans, and then we come right back around, and we've learned that, you know, again, our ancient genes may have been protecting us. And, and I thought that Paleolithic medicine was kind of a fun thing to go from, you know, social distancing to caveman orgy. <laughs> Which is, uh, let's face it, what you all tune in for week after week. That's right. All that mature professional teaching that we give out <laughs> right here in between, you know, minor minor digressions to make music and pop culture references. <laughs> I um philosophically speaking, I think it's really important to show ones who survived, modern humans today, those of us who survived, really it uh it mattered that there was a diversity, an immunologic diversity and an ancestral diversity because that kept this species going through things like pandemics and it helped us not necessarily adapt uh specifically to you know viruses and things like that but to kind of almost live in harmony with the various type of viruses we found um all around the planet and this is the big thing about humans that makes us so cool and humans of the past and of the present we are not specific uh type of things you know we we can only eat that or we can only live there we're generalists we can do all kinds of things and it's really really because we had this diversity in our uh immune genome contributed by neanderthals denisovians homo sapiens and retroviruses so let's let's see if we can sum it up in something nice and catchy uh mm-hmm. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're your modern Stone Age family. Bred with Denisovans, took some genes so they wouldn't get sickly. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine too. We'll pick up HLAs for me and you. When you're partly caveman, you will have a stronger immune, a better immune. You'll have a bunch of genes. <laughs> you try writing parodies over the course of recording an episode. <laughs> we'll see that how was it goes. Absolutely fantastic. I'm I love it, Josh. So that's it for this week. Hopefully you learned something. If we kept it too vague and not technical enough, you can find links to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially in the show notes, along with links to some of the papers used in researching this very dense episode. Uh, The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. And in the meantime, when you're building your own Wayback Machine, pull start or push start, you tell us which is better. Don't forget, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe, and if you've managed to get your vaccination and you started planning it for the next summer, happy travels. Bye, everybody. having fun (laughs) no no hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 